All right, welcome to Full Momentum and HEC Raz Vodcast. My name is Ben Carey, and here, as always, with me today is Chris Goodell. Chris, welcome to episode eight of the Full Momentum Vodcast. Thanks, Ben. Can't believe we're already at episode eight. It's going by really quick. It is. We've had yeah. tackled a number of, of really cool stories and topics, and um, the cool and kind of crazy thing about HECRAS is looking forward, it almost seems like there's going to be an unlimited number of, of these things just because there's so many topics to cover, um, even in the current version, let alone mm-hmm. when my one comes out. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about something recently that um, there's probably a lot of folks out there who are tuning in who have questions and ideas and thoughts about HECRAS and we ought to get them involved. So if you've got a question, if you've got some topic you're interested in or a specific problem with HECRAS, uh, go ahead and leave it in the comments below or um, email us at HECRAS at KleinschmidtGroup.com. That's H-E-C-R-A-S at KleinschmidtGroup.com. And we'll try and get you guys involved too and and, um, see if we can maybe help some people out. Yeah, it's a good point. And and I would, I would say that that would go for any type of question, whether it's, um, you know, just a really short, a quick uh, question, or if it's maybe more of an in-depth topic that we need to tackle. Obviously, if it's, if it's a longer topic, that'll have to be built into kind of our list down the road of topics that we handle, mm-hmm. but especially if it's like a really quick question or something you're curious about or a specific feature that you have a question about. Add those to, um, you know, like Chris said, uh, add those to the comments or send us an email about those. And uh, I think those would be great to try to answer during these podcasts so we can make it feel a little bit more like there's some participation with the uh, the audience. So Yeah, make sure you give a little context. If you send an email and you say, my model's crashing, tell me why. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to help you, <laughs> too much. but, uh, give us a little detail, a little, but not too much. We don't want to read a novel either. So, you know, some keep it brief, but, um, yeah, we'd love to uh, get you guys involved. That's what you're used to, Chris, is, is me <laughs> shooting you an email and saying, Chris, my model's crashing. Why is it happening? <laughs> but, yeah, anywho. I wish I would know the answer to that every time. But, uh, <laughs> you do most a little, a little more information. Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Hey, so, uh, before we get started today, I just wanted to give a heads up to folks that are that are observing this and maybe are uh, are watching closely. You'll notice that uh, partway through this video, there's a transition where Chris and I change shirts. My beard gets longer, <laughs> my hair gets longer, and that's because we had a, a an issue with the recording last time, and so we lost the front half of our presentation. Um, and so we're re-recording the intro intro here, and then we're going to merge that with the uh, video from last time. So don't be spooked if you see that sudden change in our appearance. <laughs> hey, but you know what? Maybe uh, the wardrobe change should be a thing. You know, halfway through, we uh, switch shirts and just mix it up a little bit. Yeah. And I know my wife was, <laughs> I know my wife was excited about me getting rid of the beard, but if if you feel differently, leave that in the comments. <laughs> let it, let us know what you thought. <laughs> I like the beard, but you look much younger, Ben, without it. So uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, I'll let you right. decide. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, we got a, We got a really cool show today. Uh, we're going to cover. Um, we're going to get in depth on a really cool topic, and that's going to be Manning's roughness uh, in for 2D models and specifically in 2D areas. Uh, in the previous podcast, episode seven, we talked about Manning's roughness in 1D uh, models, and 
kind of how that all works, how to apply and edit 1D Manning values to 1D cross sections, different references. Today, we're going to get into in depth into how to add and edit Manning's uh, roughness for a 2D model within your 2D areas. But before we get into that, we have a really cool topic for today. And it's, it's not really a news topic, more of just a really interesting um, kind of out of the box application of HECRAS that Chris Goodell um, has worked on over, I guess started on it a number of years ago and kind of has mm -hmm. periodically made updates to it and has had an opportunity to present on, on this too. It's, it's a topic that's really cool specifically for those, those folks that are um, in the know when it comes to Northwest, the Northwest and the geography that around here, because it was a, a really, really important event that really changed a lot of the um, topography in the inland Northwest, particularly and in the Columbia Gorge as well. And that is the Missoula floods. Um, so without further ado, Chris, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And uh, this, you're absolutely right. If you live in the in this area, in the Portland area, or along the Columbia River, or Eastern Washington, you know all about the Missoula floods. It's a it's a very important uh, geologic event or events that uh, have really shaped a lot of what we see on an everyday basis out here. But what's particularly interesting about it to folks like us is that it was a massive flood. In fact, one of the largest floods to ever occur on planet Earth. And it happened about uh, between 10 and 40,000 years ago in the last ice age. And it all started with a reservoir that was uh, formed by an ice dam up in uh, the panhandle of Idaho and in Western Montana. And this lake was enormous. And eventually that ice dam failed and it, uh, it caused that flood that we're going to talk about here in a second. But um, back then in the last ice age, most of the northern U.S. was covered with glaciers. And that includes the northwest of the U.S. In fact, uh, a lot of the northern parts of Washington State and Idaho had glaciers that were hundreds and hundreds of feet thick that blanketed the area. And whenever one of those things crossed a, a river, it would block it and it would dam it. And if there was no other way for that river to reroute, it would form a big lake. And that's what a glacial lake is. And so that's what this uh, discussion is all about. It's the glacial lake that formed behind this ice dam and was called glacial or is called Glacial Lake Missoula. And then the floods that resulted when that ice dam failed. So uh, I'm gonna go ahead and um, turn it over to um, past Ben and past Chris when we recorded this a couple days ago. Uh, so you'll see a little bit of a blip as I uh, get kind of back into my discussion, but this is about where I left it off. So hope you all enjoy. And, and as always, leave comments below. Let us know what you think about this, but also about our discussion that's going to follow on 2D end values. Here's the ice dam right here. And this came down uh, right in the panhandle of, of the state of Idaho and blocked the Clark Fork River, which created the glacial Lake Missoula that you see mm -hmm. right here. Now, when this thing failed, it sent a torrent. I mean, the, the amount of water that came through these channeled scablands and actually yeah. created the scablands were uh, about 10 times the volume of all the rivers in the world today all at once through this small area in Eastern Washington. 
including Spokane, Ben. So um, mm-hmm. if you guys were watching a basketball game at the time, it would have been <laughs> bad news for you. <laughs> and my, under- um, my understanding is that is part of the, the way that, um, I guess it contributed to the depth of Lake Coeur d'Alene. Is that, is yes. that correct? Because it, it more or less scoured out a large chunk of that. You probably went there a lot, right? That's where you yeah. guys go on the weekends and and uh, have your parties, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's another lake here, right where the ice dam was, called uh, Lake Ponderé, mm-hmm. and Lake Ponderé is also a very very deep lake. And this was where the breach happened. And uh, those of you who do breach modeling know that at the breach location and just downstream, you can get a really big scour hole, right? Well, this is an enormous scour hole on uh, epic proportions, right? When you have 10 times the volume of all the rivers in the world coming through this small area at once, you can imagine the the scour potential there, right? Yeah. And it even scoured out. D50 is not going to protect your channel. No, and it's funny you mentioned the D50 because there's a lot of of sediment movement through here, and you have evidence of that all over the place through these scablands. You have these big piles of boulders that are pushed off to the side of the valleys. And uh, I'll get to this later, but it even um, a, a very interesting component to this is is how it it transported giant boulders down as far as Eugene, Oregon, which is way down here. And I'll show you those in a second. But basically, this is the path of the flood wave and here or, or the flood way. And here's the Columbia River Gorge right here. Here's Portland, where Ben and I are right now doing this vodcast. And um, so this is something that interests me from the very beginning when I first read about it, being a, a water resources engineer and a hydraulic modeler. I thought, boy, I wonder if you could even model this in HECRAS. And this was well before 2D ever came out. So I went on the process of trying to build a 1D HECRAS model to simulate this flood. And uh, it was not easy, <laughs> to say the least. But um, here's a close-up view of the ice dam and what is now modern-day Lake Ponderay. Here's Spokane right here. And you can see how the flood would have just come right down here and just blown right through the location of Spokane. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some cool features if, you, uh, if you're ever out in that area. Well, first of all, look at this sign right here. This is the highest level of Lake Missoula. And look at the town down there of St. Ignatius, Montana. Mm-hmm. And you can get a perspective of high, how deep this lake was. In fact, the lake was so big, volume-wise, it was about half of Lake Michigan or about Lake Erie and Lake Ontario combined. Mm-hmm. 950 feet deep at Missoula. And in fact, if you ever get out to Missoula, Montana, and you look around the hillsides, you can see the lakeshore remnants on the hillsides. Each of these lines represent a different lake level that mm-hmm. paused periodically. And just the wave action would, would kind of erode these, these lines in the hills. And it was a mystery for the longest time. People had no idea why these lines were here and how they could be so perfectly horizontal mm. until the mystery was solved of the Missoula floods, which wasn't until uh, just recently. And this was led by um, a geologist named Jay Harlan Bretz out of the University of Chicago. And he came out to Eastern Washington, was fascinated by the scab lands out there. And back in 1923, we didn't have aerial imagery to see these features. So he was interpreting everything from the ground level 
I think he might have gotten in an airplane a few times, but generally he was he was at ground level and he saw these features that were way larger than they look like they should be. Mm-hmm. There were little tiny trickles of a stream going through, but the feature was so large that it looked like there must have been a massive river there at one point. And nobody really knew what caused that. But he came up with the, this theory of the of the floods, and he called them the Spokane floods, um, which is another name for it. We call them the Missoula floods as well. But he was immediately rejected from the geologic community. And this is a really good lesson for everybody out there that... Um, you know, don't, don't necessarily reject um, theories that sound unreasonable because you never know. I mean, it's, you need to look at things closely and and examine and um, take a really unbiased look. But back then, back then, everything was very biased. Um, They looked at geology through the lens of uniformitarianism, which is a hard word to say, but it was also a, um, a belief that everything we see in geology happened over millions of years. And, and that is the case with a lot of it, but there were some of these events that were very quick and brief and did a lot of change of geometry in a very short period of time. And that was the Missoula floods. And um, he proposed that theory, I think, uh, well, he first started viewing the Scablands in 20, 1923 and um, it wasn't until 1965 that the geologic community actually embraced J. Harlan Bretz, and, and he actually won the, the highest medal you can win in geology in 1979. What's the highest medal we can win in hydraulic engineering or hydraulic modeling, Ben? Because uh, I'd like to know. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's being a guest on our podcast. That's, hey, there you go. All right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Um, so just some examples of striking features around, um, the, the Northwest, this is, um, dry falls right here. And it's, um, five times wider than Niagara falls. There's just a little relative trickle of water that spills in here. And when you look at it, um, both in the aerial view, but in, in person, it's hard to imagine what could create such a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you do some more exploration around you, you see these ripple patterns, but these are ripple patterns that are on an enormous scale. First of all, you can see them in aerial imagery. You guys, everybody out there watching this, you can get on Google Earth and just uh, um, dial into this area, the West Bar area of Washington and look at the Columbia River here and these ripple patterns you see on this point bar. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you get an appreciation. This is the yeah. feature I'm most familiar with when it comes to Missoula floods because it, it's one of those things where if you're driving through eastern Washington, you won't notice it. It just kind of looks like rolling hills. There's yeah. nothing necessarily that stands out. But when you get in an airplane and you fly from Seattle to Spokane, it looks like you know the tide flats of a of a sandy beach as far as the ripple patterns. And and at that point, you know it's it's very mm-hmm. easy to understand that there was a lot of water moving over here at some point. Um, and like you, yeah. when you get the scale of the Columbia River, you understand that, hey, and you know, the the example you're showing there, the West Bar, that's relatively close to the Columbia, right? So maybe you could infer mm-hmm. that there was a, the Columbia was a lot larger at some point and maybe it flooded over there. It's like, okay, well, that's a little bit, you can see these these ripple patterns 
in the middle of nowhere, well away from the Columbia River. And that is a real sign of like, hey, there was something ha that happened here. Um, yeah. That, that isn't necessarily associated with just a flood of the Columbia. Um, so that's pretty cool. That's right. And look at this boat um, down here mm -hmm. in the image for scale. And these are the yeah. ripples that you see here. These are the same exact kind of ripples you see, like you said, Ben, on a beach uh, as the water recedes or yep. in, a, in a sand bed stream. And these are enormous, 50 feet high, wavelengths of up to 500 feet. I mean, no one's ever seen anything like that, or, or mm -hmm. at least uh, back then when J. Harlan Bretz was exploring the area. And so all these little puzzle pieces work together. Here's one like you were mentioning out in the middle of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. Some ripple patterns. And here mm -hmm. you can see a truck driving through the middle of it on, an, on a highway. So that's mm -hmm. another example. And you can see that um, from aerial photography. Um, and then this was what I was getting at before, these ice-rafted erratics. So as I mentioned, the, the, the dam was an ice dam, right? And it was formed by a glacier. And this glacier, as it moved and advanced southwards, it picked up rocks as it went, mm -hmm. giant rocks, and entrained them inside of the glacier. And when the ice dam broke, it broke into all sorts of pieces, little icebergs, and they all floated downstream. Some of these icebergs actually had giant rocks embedded in them, and they floated these rocks downstream, and they would settle out in some backwater area and fall out and end up melt, melting, and then left behind was this rock that was sitting in the middle of a field. It just was out of place. There was no reason for it to be there, and furthermore, uh, scientists start to figure out that, hey, the composition of these rocks, the mineral makeup, is not anything we have around this area. How is it possible? And then then they start figuring out, well, it's the same kind of rock you have in Montana. Yeah. And um, yeah, talk about scratching your head. And for a long time, people thought these rocks were put here by aliens or they were meteorites or something like that. And um, sure. it's just, again, another piece of the puzzle. Here's a really good example of an ice rafted erratic on the side of this highway. And you can even see it from Google Earth right here. You can see a bunch of other erratics in this field and farmers don't even deal with them. They just, they just plant their crops around these erratics and just go around them. They just, they just deal with it. If you look at um, the, uh, here's a map of the Portland, greater Portland area. And all these triangles you see here are all identified erratics. Now they're harder to find in the Portland area because we have a lot of vegetation. So you've got trees and, and bushes and grass growing over some of these and they've been weathered some of them a lot. So uh, some don't even exist anymore. This is a really good example of an erratic that you can go to. These are my girls. Um, several years ago, we did a hike up to this and um, perfect example. It's a great place to go to. It's in the middle of wine country. So you can go look at the erratic and then go have some wine too at a really um, good winery somewhere. So here's how I set up the model. This is just the uh, the terrain that I used. And when I first did this, I did it in 1D because I mentioned earlier, we didn't have 2D in HECRAS back then. And computing power was a lot less than what we have on our typical computers today as well. And so I had to really manage the size of this terrain and keep it, um, keep it small and keep it efficient. And so I used a 30 meter resolution or sorry, 130 horizontal resolution. This came from the one degree DEM USGS aerosite and converted that to an Esri grid and then used that to cut my cross sections. And, um, the hard part, at least originally, I thought the hard part was going to be, how do I set this model up? There were so many different flood paths 
and um, I can imagine I'm going to have a lot of junctions, a lot of diversions, a lot of lateral structures, which was true. But my original worry that it was going to be hard to figure out how to set this up was overcome pretty quickly. When you look at the aerial imagery, because you can see in the Scavlands, at least, the flood path still. Everybody get on Google Earth, zoom into eastern Washington. You can see these flood paths from the Google or from the from the Missoula floods. Okay, and so these were where I drew my flow lines. So it made it actually very easy to set up the model, relatively no, speaking. I, I wouldn't say that. very easy. That's a well, that's a, easier than I thought it would be. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's a good point, Ben. And and here's what it ended up looking like. These are all my cross sections and my um, my reaches and rivers and. In total, I had 2,346 cross-sections when you count up all of the interpolated ones. These just show the uninterpolated cross-sections. And 68 reaches, 34 junctions, 36 external boundaries. That was one of the harder parts was to figure out what, what amount of flow was I going to put in each of these different external boundary conditions. So I got on to USGS and um, looked at gauges and tried to get an idea of base flow amounts, and that's what I put in there. But a lot of it really... Ben was uh, trying to stabilize this thing. And this was the biggest time investment of putting this together was stabilizing this model. And this wasn't something I was doing for work. So this was on my own time, which meant uh, I was doing an hour or two in the evenings and some time on the weekends. And all told, it probably took a couple of months to get this model put together and stabilized. Um, and again, that was just, you know, an hour here, hour there. So usually I would come home from work and I would make a little change to try and get overcome an instability and I'd run the model and, and let it run overnight and then see how it turned out the next day. So here's another look at the model with the interpolated cross sections. You can see I've got some inline structures in here. If you zoom in closer, some lateral structures as well. At a 30 second time step and I uh, was running it for 21 days. And with the size of this model, you can imagine it takes a long time to run, which it did. It did, for sure. And I had to set up a hot start, too. That was the only way I could get this thing stable for initial conditions. But um, so anyway, um, fast forward to uh, a few years ago uh, when 2D came out in HECRAS, I decided, hey, we need to we need to set this up as a 2D model, because obviously you look around here and all these different flow paths this is very much a two dimensional example. So let me show you what I put together um, recently, relatively recently. And here is the same location, and I've got a giant, actually two different 2D areas. There's one downstream of the ice dam and one upstream, which represents the, uh, the Lake Missoula. Yeah. And once I had this 2D area drawn in here, this thing ran almost immediately. I had a few errors to work out, but there were no instability problems because I had my current numbers correct. Yeah, yeah, and huge cells. <laughs> huge cells, yes, huge cells for sure, uh, which allowed me to have a bigger time step. So this thing could yeah. run in a reasonable amount of time. It took, I think, I want to say it takes about a couple hours to run. Mm -hmm. um, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly. But it ran the first time. It was so exciting because it took me I literally a couple months of running and rerunning the 1D model. And this thing went in, in, uh, in, right away and you know of course i made some tweaks and improved it and everything but uh let me show you the animation of this because it's super cool 
So here we see the state of Washington. This is Idaho, Montana over here where the lake is. And then Oregon down here. Here's Portland where we're sitting, Ben. And if I go ahead and animate this, this is our 2D model. It's really cool. Look at the, uh, the hot spot there right at the breach. And here it is uh, heading its way down to Gonzaga. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. Running and to the South Hill. <laughs> that's right. And it's going down the Spokane River here, and eventually it will tie into the Columbia at um, Lake Roosevelt, which is what's backed up behind Grand Coulee today. Well, the interesting I, thing that, here is, too, is you can see that it's it's following the river, but it's also bypassing the river and just blowing right. through the Palouse and that, that whole, um, the Scablands there. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, because the water got so deep here, it actually spilled over the edge. This is all the Columbia and the Spokane. This is all through a canyon, but you've got some flatland here. And and back before these floods, it was, it was all fertile silt there. Mm-hmm. Hundreds mm-hmm. of feet thick of silt. And that all got scoured out to leave behind what we have now, which are the scab lands there. Yeah. But, well, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because Oregon benefited from this pretty mightily because we took a lot of that topsoil and it got deposited <laughs> in the Willamette Valley, which is part of the reason why the Willamette Valley has some of the best soil for agricultural purposes um that's in the right whole region so yeah in fact there's some really great wine um areas too uh viticultural areas you've got uh the willamette valley um ava here you've got columbia river ava walla walla right here has great wines look at look at walla walla right here this is mm-hmm. a backwater area all of this silt got dumped right here yep got dumped right here up here in the Yakima Valley where they have uh, great orchards of apples and uh, Mm -hmm. pears and stuff, right? Yeah. And ultimately here you can see it's still moving down the Columbia River Gorge, just about to get into Portland. I'm gonna zoom in here. Do you wanna fast forward a little bit, Chris? Cause I think it's like 15 minute or five minute time steps it's showing right now, so. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. But let uh, let me get it into Portland here a little bit. And here's here are the Willamette Valley vineyards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Halem Valley here. So, um, and you can pause this, and we can take a look at the particle tracing too, and zoom in. Um, notice where these funnels are right here. These, mm-hmm. these jets. You can actually drive out there, Ben, today, and you you can see the carving that was done in these areas. This is Lake Oswego, which is actually was formed by this event. Mm-hmm. And here's on the uh, Willamette River. And if you look around Oregon City, you can see these basalt cliffs around Oregon City. Even over here, there's some scab lands uh, further over. Actually, right here, the Tonkin scab lands. You can see some features there as well. So anyway, this is it. it all told, it took about 21 days for the flood to finally recede and drain out to the Pacific Ocean. And you can see too, went all the way as far south as Eugene, Oregon. And Mm -hmm. so you even see some erratics down there as well. So yeah, pretty, pretty wild stuff. So Chris, what was, what was the final, one of the cool features that I've seen you show is the final inundation map compared to um, what is basically mapped by geologists and how well that overlaid. Yeah, let's let's take a look at that. I'm going to turn on the max water surface right hey, here. Yeah, go ahead and turn on the water surface or the depth so it's easier to see because the velocity is kind of messy. Yeah, you're right. 
So here's the max water surface depth. And let's see if I can go back to my uh, PowerPoint. And we'll go up to this first slide here. Here is the flood mm -hmm. that uh, geologists uh, think happened. And here's how mine turned out. So it's pretty close, right? Yeah. Yeah, it looks. It you looks see a lot of these these islands here show up there as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, it's that's a cool, really cool application, Chris. This is, I think, one of those things that shows that RAS is really capable of of modeling almost anything. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, knowing how to stabilize your model. Um, obviously, one of the limitations of this model is, you know, I think you had like five hundred foot cells or something like that. So. There's no way that you were going to be able to do any type of, you know, detailed uh, site-specific analysis with this model. But for the purpose of it, which is simulating a, um, one of the largest dam breaches in the history of of the Earth, um, it works fine, right? <laughs> I mean, so it, this yeah. is this is one of those uh, uh, things to pay attention to. It's really important to ask yourself what is what is the purpose of my model, and hmm. is the cell size and time step that I've chosen appropriate for that? In this case, totally absolutely is um but probably wouldn't want to do a bridge scour analysis on the columbia river for this <laughs> no but here's the cool thing is you can take this model and you can use it as boundary conditions for little small pieces like i yeah. can build my own uh, i could build a separate 2d model of just the portland area maybe carve out here and here and maybe right here or, or a little further down make this its own 2d model with much smaller cells and then use the bigger model to inform the boundary conditions and i've actually done some of that already i want to do a lot more of it so you can get a really good picture of the flow patterns and depths and velocities shear stresses that um that we're going on through here it's uh, pretty yeah. impressive. very cool thanks for sharing that chris of course, um, yeah. And and one quick thing too is um I give a presentation on this too, and I've done probably you know a dozen or more uh of these. So always happy to share more detail about this event and the model and what you can get out of the model. If anybody's interested in uh seeing a presentation, let me know. Great. Very, very cool. All right, well, before we move into our technical HECRAS topic for today, I just wanted to take the time to thank our sponsor for this episode. And our sponsor, as always, is our uh, engineering firm, Schmidt Associates, who is known throughout the industry uh, as a firm that provides practical solutions to complex problems affecting energy, water, and the environment. Uh, you can learn more at kleinschmidtgroup.com. And at kleinschmidtgroup.com, there's also a, uh, an advertisement for our fall HECRAS class, which will be taking place for six weeks um, from October 7th to November 11th. It's one four-hour webinar session a week, plus workshops in between the lectures. Uh, we, had, we just finished our first class uh, a couple weeks ago. It went yep. very well. We got a lot of great feedback. Chris and I felt good about how the in-person curriculum transferred to online curriculum in some ways there was actually um, some benefits there was a number number of folks that commented that they really felt like they were able to retain the information better because they were taught they were diving into the material for six weeks as opposed to three days um, and so uh, definitely encourage everybody who enjoys these vodcasts who wants to learn more who wants to take their HECRAS game to the next level um, this is kind of a fun 
project and something fun for, for HECRAS users to pay attention to and to get a thing or two here or there um, to, to up their HECRAS game. But if you really want to take your, your modeling expertise to the next level, um, I think Chris and I would both say it's, it's really important to, to take a class yeah. like this. Yeah, you um, get it's much a very similar format. It's Chris and I just, you know, mm -hmm. going back and forth talking about, it's more structured, but uh, talking about HECRAS topics, answering questions, going through workshops. Um, it's, a, it's a really it's, great yeah. exercise. It's a deeper dive, right, Ben? I mean, we go into more um, uh, more topics, but we go deeper into it. We get into theory and we get into, and, and you get to do workshops too, where we're yeah. there to help you through it and guide you and talk about them afterwards. So it's a, it's a great opportunity and we have a lot of fun too. Uh, so yeah. highly, if you didn't make the first one, uh, there's plenty of time to sign up for the next one. So I hope to see you guys there. Yep. And again, you guys can find the ad and the pre-sign up on our LinkedIn pages, Ben Carey and Chris Goodell, or at kleinschmidtgroup.com. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the technical topic for today. And we're going to talk about Manning's roughness values in 2D models uh, in HECRAS. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here as I kind of give a little bit of introduction. So for those of you guys who were able to see our previous episode, we talked about Manning's roughness in one, for 1D models. And in some ways, there's a little bit more customization and it can be a little bit more complicated working with Manning's in 1D. Obviously, you can assign cross sections to or um, in individual Manning's values to individual, individual cross sections. The bigger the model you have, the more Manning adjustments you might have to do. You might have to adjust the location of your left over bank and your right over bank and your channel. There's a lot of, of, of customization that can potentially need to go on. With 2D, uh, it's it's pretty easy. It, it's very quick to set up. Um, it's it's nice because you get a, you can have a, a very spatially varied um, Manning's end layer that's associated with your 2D uh, mesh, and we're going to talk about kind of how that works right now. So for the uh, this is RasMapper. Everyone should be familiar with this tool by now. Uh, obviously, one of the things Chris and I always, always say when you start a new project, you want to uh, add a projection file to your project. You want to bring in aerial imagery, and then you're going to add your terrain. So this project already has the terrain in here. Um, the next thing that Chris and I always suggest people do is to bring in a Manning's end layer. And the way that you do that is you go to Tools, um, New Land Cover, okay? And then you're going to get an option to pop up here that looks like this. And you're going to have the option to add a Manning's end value layer, okay? And this is going to be, most of the time, this, the format for this is going to be a shape file, but you can also add a TIFF or an image file that represents your, your Manning's end uh, values for your 2D project area. And there's really two ways to add a Manning's end layer. One would be to add in a general land classification database, something that's publicly available, something like uh, the uh, NLCD database. Let me pull up a presentation that Chris and I give. It's actually part of our class here. Um, so this is an example of the NLCD database. You can see that it's a, it's a nationwide database of land cover in the United States, and it's often what HECRAS users use to bring in as a Manning's end uh, layer. The problem with this is you can see it's it's pretty coarse, and so you're not going to have a lot of detail when it comes to around your, your channel itself. So you can see here the blue is the channel in this case, and you can actually see that there's some gaps in the channel, and so you, you would transition from one mains layer to another in the same channel. And so this is going to give you, you know, this is going to create some issues, especially if you're going to be doing some near 
field study or some design for a specific location. So if you're doing that, uh, what Chris and I would recommend instead of using like a national database like this would be to create your own mannings and layer. And this is something you can do in GIS and then bring in as a shapefile into mannings. And again, the way you would do that is either go under tools, new land cover, or you can come into uh, map layers, right click on map layers and add new manning and layer. It's a little bit confusing because this option and new land cover are both, they both are the same thing. They just have two different names there. So a little tricky, tricky thing there to understand, but. Just to confuse um, you guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, again, I, I would say that more often than not, what Chris and I do is we actually would just create our own Manning's and layer for our project. So, you know, if I were doing a project that's just in this area here, that's easy enough to spend a few hours and discretize our own land use shape file. Maybe some uh, you'd have a value to represent your channel, maybe some areas that represent a like if we turn on the aerial imagery here and zoom in to uh, this area, you can see looks like we have like a reservoir area and some river channel. And then we have some overbank areas that represent um, some heavy, heavily forested areas as well as some open space and some rural residential. So you could discretize all of this with it with a, a simple shape file. Uh, we usually don't go to the level where you're actually discretizing individual homes, but you can do that as well, depending on again the level of your analysis that you're doing. Um, but when you when you when you discretize that and you have your shape file that represents your Manning's end values, again, you do that by coming in here, adding new Manning's end layer. You choose a specific layer. Okay, so in this case, what I'll do is I'll navigate to a sample here. Uh, let's go to GIS. Uh, Try this okay and then you'll get these different options so um, you'll see here in, in this case I don't have any I don't have uh, there's not multiple mainings and uh, shape shapes in this shape file and so I only have one option but you can see you can uh, select the naming fields uh, you can customize which field you want to be represented for your main end layer and then you can actually customize uh, the individual manning values for each type of shape file and so if you had multiple shape files those would all show up here and you could manually add in what you want your manning's end layer to be um, the other thing the other option that chris is going to talk about here in a second is using override regions and so i'll let chris dive into that in uh in a second but once you have the manning's layer brought in to your hecras project you have to associate that Manning's end layer, just like you have to associate a terrain layer with a specific geometry. And you can do that by right clicking on the terrain, manage terrain associations. And then if we look at this dialog box, you can see that each one of my geometries has a terrain that I associate with it, as well as a Manning's end layer, okay? And if you don't have your Manning's end layer associated with the geometry, or if you don't have a Manning's end layer brought into your project period, you will not be able to use override regions, which is what Chris is going to talk about right now. Yeah. Um, so Ben mentioned the shape files that you can bring in uh, to be your land cover. Uh, there's also a really simple way to do end values too, and that's to apply a single end value for the entire 2D area. And that's yeah, done yeah. right here in the 2D area editor. But the third option, as uh, Ben introduced here is the refinement regions, which I'm going to talk about now. But the only way you can use a refinement region is if you already have 
a land cover layer established and associated with this geometry file. So you can double check on that by going into RAS Mapper. And let me get into RAS Mapper here really quick. It's thinking. Okay, so here you can see my land cover um, layer. And I've got it highlighted right here. Oops, highlighted over here, which means since it's highlighted, if I hover over, I can see the different end values mm -hmm. associated with it. So that's really cool. But to check that it's um, associated, just right click on the geometries label, go to manage geometry associations. And then make sure you've got. Oops. Probably on a, dip, probably on a different screen, Chris. Yeah, you're right. It is. There we go. Okay, so just make sure that you've got your land classification right here established for each of the geometries you want to use it. Now, once you have that, that unlocks the ability to use these refinement regions. And the reason the refinement regions are here. Override, override regions, right, Chris? <clears throat> yeah, same thing. Um, oh, no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> override regions yes sorry um don't confuse that with the refinement regions yes override regions um okay the reason we have these override regions are well they were initially put in so that you would have a way to calibrate so you run your model and you see oh my my depths are a little bit too high over here but they're a little low on this side well, what I could do is I can make a region over here and another one over here, and those regions, then I can adjust the base level and values to something different to try to calibrate my results. And so if you go back to the geometry window, you can see I've got some regions in here. They're very small. Let me zoom in. Now, in this case, I'm using regions to... Yeah, you can't even see them because of the mesh here, but I'm using regions in these little um, refinement regions. I've got some override regions as well. I'm using those to simulate a what's called an, um, a large wood structure in the river. It's a restoration uh, element that's commonly used here in the Northwest and, and around uh, probably around the world too, but great way to, to provide some habitat and some uh, gray control as well. But this um, this is going to have a much higher end value, right? And so instead of going back and making a new land cover, I can just simply click this 2D area, regions, Manning's end regions, override regions, and I can draw in an override region where I'd like to have one. Okay, just give it a name, uh, OR6. Okay, and there's another override region. Now, what... I, with that override region, these other ones in here, the ability to make end value changes is very easy. All you have to do is go into the tables menu item, go down to your Manning's end by land cover. And here you can see your land cover table. Now, the way this table works, let me scrunch it up a little bit here, is you've got your base end values uh, are your default end values right here. And these are what come out of your land cover layer. Okay, we've got an end value of 10 for buildings, uh, 0.12 for medium density residential, et cetera, all the way down. Okay, now for these override regions, each override region you've, 
you've drawn in your geometry, you've got a column for that override region. Here are the five that were already in there at the beginning. This is the one I just created. And let's say that, you know, in th that particular region, I'm doing some work there. It's going to be uh, pretty, maybe graded out and just a bunch of, of dirt, okay? So I might want to just force an end value anywhere that that region exists of 0.04, okay? And I can copy that, paste it all the way down. Okay, so now anytime, anywhere where that override region exists, the end value will automatically be 0 0.04, mm -hmm. okay? No matter what it was over here, it's gonna override that with 0 0.04. So that's, a, that's another example of how to use these override regions is just to provide a specific end value, maybe for a proposed condition. Like in this case, this is a restoration site and I've got my existing conditions set with my land cover layer but my proposed conditions I'm gonna define with these refinement regions, okay? And so that's just, uh, that's the third way of doing end values. And the cool thing is you can do this right in the geometry window. You don't have to create a separate layer or anything that's done for you. But you can also set up regions, refinement regions in the, uh, in RAS Mapper. Let me pull up RAS Mapper. So we're back in RAS Mapper. If I go up to geometries and notice under this particular geometry, the ELJs, I've got a Manning's N group. If I expand that, then you'll see override regions. So just like any other geometric layer, input layer, I can right click and I can edit that. And that will allow me to draw some more regions in here. Here you can see the regions I already have. I can just draw some more if I'd like to save that and they'll show up in the geometry window. You can also right click on that override regions, Chris, right now and go to open attribute table. And once you have those drawn and this is where you can actually add mm -hmm. those end values in as well. Right, so. yeah, yeah, good point. So there's a load, lot of overlap between uh, doing these in RASMAP or the geometry. So for now, do whichever one uh, makes sense to you, whatever you're more comfortable with. I think ultimately you're probably going to be doing this in uh, RAS Mapper or something similar to RAS Mapper in the future. Yeah. And Chris had a good point um, that I, I, I neglected to touch on. And that was before you even bring in a Manning's layer, uh, your 2D area does have a default Manning's end value. And the, what, what that is, is based on when you create a 2D layer, so in this case, under 2D flow areas, perimeters, I have a 2D layer, for instance, here, you right click on this, and this is, I'm in RAS Mapper, edit the 2D flow area properties, and you'll see you, you define your, your cell sizes, but you define your default Manning's end value. So this will be the default Manning's end value for every single cell face within your 2D mesh, unless you specify or bring in a Manning's end layer and use override regions. So uh, a lot of times when you're just initially setting up a model, you don't actually need to go through and bring in a Manning's end layer. Maybe you just wanna use just the default Manning's and you just wanna get the model running, making sure everything's looking okay. And then you can add more detail. Again, that's one of our secrets for success is start simple, add more detail where it's needed. Yeah, and let me, let me make a quick point here, Ben, before you continue on, because this is a question I get all the time. And that is, how are the end values applied on the mesh? And the way it works is you get one end value per cell face. 
Yeah. Okay. And the end value that gets applied to the entire cell face is the end value that the center of that cell falls within. So yep. if you look at the center of the cell face, sorry, the cell face, if you look at the center of the cell face. Yeah. Right there. You can see that it's, it's close to the blue or the green. It's hard to I tell. It's probably blue. I think blue. it would be the blue in this case. Yeah. yeah. And so that blue end value now is going to be applied to the entire cell face, even though half of it is green, whatever yep. the number is, I can't quite see the number there, but so that's something that's very important for you to know. And if that's going to have an effect on your results, you're going to want to put a break line maybe right down there um, yep. so that you have a separate face on either side of that um, of that end value classification boundary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good, Chris. So in the same line on this cell face here, the center of this cell face is green. So this entire cell face would get the Manning's end value of 0 0.075 versus right. this cell would get the Manning's end value of 0 0.035. So this is a dis one a disadvantage of having larger cells, right? Because you're not going to mm -hmm. have, uh, you're not going to capture the variance as well. But like Chris said, if, you, if you, it's going to cause you big issues, you can add a break line along here so that your cell face ends right at that uh, Manning's end layer and each cell face yeah. is more representative of the actual area. Yeah. Um, the other so thing I was going to show people... is just, that's that's why some people will will put break lines along their banks of a river. Yep. Is is yep. that's that's one reason to do that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So the last thing I was going to show was just kind of how this works in practice. Um, so this is a project that I was working on recently, and uh, wanted to have my own customized Manning's end layer. And so these were the steps that I took. So I obviously I brought in my terrain. I added a projection pile. Brought in aerial imagery. And then the first thing I did is I just went to features here. So I didn't even use GIS to do any of this. This was all in RASMapper. I drew a, uh, I, what I, I went to features, create new layer, polygon layer, and I called it base land cover, base LC. And all it is is just a, just a simple rectangle here that's uh, across my entire project area, okay? Once I created that, I right-clicked, exported the layer to a shape file, okay? And then I was able to bring that in as a Manning's layer because now it's a shapefile. So I came into tools, add new layer, and I added that shapefile in. And that this is what it ended up looking like here. So if I, sorry, it's um, turned off, there we go. So this is what ended up um, coming in was for my, for my Manning's end layers, this, this rectangle that represents a single Manning's value of 0 0.075, okay? So right now this is no better than my default value of 0 0.06 is just a single value for my entire area. But what I did then is I came in and I, uh, I associated that main end layer with my geometry. And then I drew in multiple override regions that represented mm -hmm. my reservoir area, my overbank areas, some heavily forested areas, some open areas, some rural residential areas. And I drew those all in. Okay. And then um, I assigned each of those override regions a, a Manning's end value. And then when you go ahead and, and run the pre-processing of your 2D area, what you what how you can see what your final Manning's end values are is under, again, my geometry, the name of my geometry, Manning's end. This shows my location of my override regions. This shows what my final end values are for this model. So you can see I got my 0.075, which is that large rectangle. And then I have my override regions, which represent kind of some of the more fine detail um, in these different different areas here. So uh, this is a good example of a super quick way to do this. Um, it didn't take a ton of time or effort. 
Um, if I was going to use this model for a detailed hydraulic design in a particular area, I'd probably want some, some even more refinement. Maybe I would use something like GIS to do some of that processing, but it can be done really quick. And what you end up with is a spatially varied Manning's end layer for a 2D model, which is pretty slick. Yeah, and just to reiterate, to unlock the ability to use the override regions, you have to draw in you know, even just a very simple rectangular uh, land cover layer like you did there, Ben. So that's a really yeah. cool application. Um, and, and this would be great if you have, maybe your 2D area is the majority a single end value, but you just have a few little areas here and there, then you could quickly just put some refinement regions on there. And so yeah. really cool, really cool technique. Yeah, we just have a few more minutes here, Chris, but I wanted to just briefly touch on some of the challenges that are associated with Manning's end values for 2D models. Um, obviously with 1D models and 1D cross sections, you have some tools that you're, uh, uh, that you're uh, available to you that allow you to account for maybe depth varied Manning's end or horizontally varied Manning's end. And you don't have that same option for, for Manning's end. So what do you think some of the big limitations are um, yeah. for 2D Manning's end values? Um, I, one thing that stands out to me immediately is when you're doing any type of rain on grid modeling, right? You can't yeah. do rain on grid in 1D. Uh, we, do, we, we talk about rain on grid in 2D in our class. And uh, one of the limitations there is many, many of your cells are going to have very, very shallow depths. Um, and so having a Manning's end value um, of 0.075 for forested areas might be totally reasonable for a, for a flood event and a floodplain, but when you're talking about depths that are less than an inch, that seems like it's way too small. Yeah, yeah, you picked up on it. Uh, that's exactly right. Now that vertical variation and values, especially when you have really, really shallow depths and depths that are on the same order of magnitude as the roughness elements themselves. So like a blade of grass, for example, if the water is flowing through the blades of grass, uh, that roughness is very high. And if you were to ever look at a relationship between Manning's end roughness and depth, you'll see as the depth decreases, you get a, um, a, a, a really steep increase in end values at some point. And so um, it looks usually looks something like this. So like if, if I got my chart here and this is end value, no, sorry, this is depth. And this is my end value here usually you get something like this, a pretty constant end value at higher depths. And then as it gets lower and lower, it does something like this, right? And this is the zone where you're, you're in sheet flow, right? And you've got water about the same order of magnitude and depth as the roughness elements. Unfortunately, in the current version of RAS, we can't simulate this with our end value. You only get one end value for the entire range of depths, yeah. right? And so, we can't do that in the current version. Uh, future versions will allow for that. So what you have to do is you have to identify these areas. Is it going to be primarily sheet flow, um, yep. especially if you're doing rain on grid? And if it is, then you need to elevate those end values. Otherwise, you're going to have velocities that are too high and depths that are too low. Water is going to move through that area faster than it's supposed to. And so yeah. calibrating really is a very powerful way to figure this out. Yeah, that can really, not only can that jack up the results as far as the velocities and depths, but it can throw off your timing. Yeah. You're, you know, simulating a large basin. Uh, the time that it takes for rain to get from this portion to a river or a town 
is going to be uh, overly uh, conservative or, or too fast if you're using kind of just a default Manning's end layer for normal channel flow. Yeah. So like Chris yeah. said, I think this is more definitely more of an issue for rain on grid modeling, in which case you mm -hmm. need to identify <laughs> those areas and maybe use an artificially higher Manning's end uh, value for the areas that you know are getting mostly sheet flow. But even yeah. some of the areas um, where you have really shallow backwater or really shallow depths in your floodplain, you might have to take into account, maybe I need to use a slightly higher Manning's end value for those. Yeah, and just keep in mind, the end values that are in the publications that we mentioned in the last uh, podcast, uh, publications like Barnes or Chow or Hicks and Mason, uh, those are all created for flood conditions or higher depths. And so those end values are more appropriate for rivers and floodplains where you've got appreciable water moving over them. They're not necessarily going to apply for really shallow depths in a 2D sense. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind too, the 2D equations actually take into account some of the features that are lumped into the end values that you see in these books, like turbulence losses. Okay. That's something that's not explicitly computed when, when they're defining the end values from those resources, but we have that built into the equation. So in theory, our 2D Manning's end value should be a little bit less mm. than what you're getting out of those publications. Now in practice, what you're going to do is you're going to use those end values. If you've got normal depths of flow anyway, and you might back them off a little bit based on your engineering judgment. But in reality, the calibration effort is going to cover that that range of uncertainty. Um, so that's just a, another um, plug for doing a calibration effort on your model, because there's a lot more uncertainty with the 2D end values than with 1D for sure. Yep. Very, very good. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, before we good take talk. off for the day, anything else that you want to add? No, I think we did a good job. A really quick overview of 2D end values. Again, we take a much deeper dive in the in the uh, online training course and, and the in-person training course. When we get through this COVID thing, we'll we'll be able to do these in person again. But uh, but until then, yeah, um, check out the course. We'll do a much deeper dive into end values and all the other features in building your HECRAS models. Very good. Yeah, hope hope uh, many many folks can join us. I think we had almost 40 people last time. We'd love to get more than that this time. I think we will. Um, but if you're interested, uh, you know, feel free to ask a question on the comment page of this of this YouTube video. Uh, but go do you know some research. Look at our LinkedIn uh, posts for for some background on that class and uh, and sign up. Yeah, keep the conversation going in the comments too. Ben and I check these uh, periodically, and and um, you know if you, this generated any questions for you, we'd be happy to entertain those. Awesome. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Chris, I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Everybody you too, that's uh, attending this podcast, stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, until next time, this has been Full Momentum, an HEC RAS podcast.